Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 40 of North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter 40. Out of Tune. I have no wrong where I can claim no right, not tame me fro, where I have nothing had, yet of my woe I cannot be so quite. Namely, sense that another may be glad with that, that thus in sorrow makes me sad. Wyatt Margaret had not expected much pleasure to herself from Mr. Bell's visit. She had only looked forward to it on her father's account. But when her godfather came, she at once fell into the most natural position of friendship in the world. He said she had no merit in being what she was, a girl so entirely after his own heart. It was a hereditary power which she had, to walk in and take possession of his regard, while she, in reply, gave him much credit for being so fresh and young under his fellow's cap and gown. Fresh and young, in warmth and kindness, I mean, I'm afraid I must own, that I think your opinions are the oldest and mustiest I have met with this long time. Hear this daughter of yours, Hale. Her residence at Milton has quite corrupted her. She's a Democrat, a Red Republican, a member of the Peace Society, a Socialist. Papa, it's all because I'm standing up for the progress of commerce. Mr. Bell would have had it kept still at exchanging wild beast skins for acorns. No, no, I'd dig the ground and grow potatoes, and I'd shave the wild beast skins and make the wool into broadcloth. Don't exaggerate, Missy. But I'm tired of this bustle. Everybody's rushing over everybody in their hurry to get rich. It's not everyone who can sit comfortably in a set of college rooms and let his riches grow without any exertion of his own. No doubt. There's many a man here who would be thankful if his property would increase as yours has done, without his taking any trouble about it, said Mr. Hale. I don't believe they would. It's the bustle and the struggle they like. As for sitting still, and learning from the past, or shaping out the future by faithful work done in a prophetic spirit, why, pooh, I don't believe there's a man in Milton who knows how to sit still, and it is a great art. Milton people, I suspect, think Oxford men don't know how to move. It would be a very good thing if they mixed a little more. It might be good for the Miltoners. Many things might be good for them, which would be very disagreeable for other people. Are you not a Milton man yourself? asked Margaret. I should have thought you would have been proud of your town. I confess, I don't see what there is to be proud of. If you'll only come to Oxford, Margaret, I will show you a place to glory in. Well, said Mr. Hale, Mr. Thornton is coming to drink tea with us tonight, and he is as proud of Milton as you of Oxford. You two must try and make each other a little more liberal-minded. I don't want to be more liberal-minded, 
"'Thank you,' said Mr. Bell. "'Is Mr. Thornton coming to tea, Papa?' asked Margaret in a low voice. "'Either to tea or soon after. He could not tell. He told us not to wait.' Mr. Thornton had determined that he would make no inquiry of his mother as to how far she had put her project into execution, of speaking to Margaret about the impropriety of her conduct. He felt pretty sure that, if this interview took place, his mother's account of what passed at it would only annoy and chagrin him, though he would all the time be aware of the colouring which it received by passing through her mind. He shrank from hearing Margaret's very name mentioned. He, while he blamed her, while he was jealous of her, while he renounced her, he loved her sorely, in spite of himself. He dreamt of her. He dreamt she came dancing towards him, with outspread arms, and with a lightness and gaiety which made him loathe her, even while it allured him. But the impression of this figure of Margaret, with all Margaret's character taken out of it, as completely as if some evil spirit had got possession of her form, was so deeply stamped upon his imagination, that when he wakened he felt hardly able to separate the ulna from the duessa, and the dislike he had to the latter seemed to envelop and disfigure the former. Yet he was too proud to acknowledge his weakness by avoiding the sight of her. He would neither seek an opportunity of being in her company, nor avoid it. To convince himself of his power of self-control, he lingered over every piece of business this afternoon. He forced every movement into unnatural slowness and deliberation, and it was consequently past eight o'clock before he reached Mr. Hale's. Then there were business arrangements to be transacted in the study with Mr. Bell, and the latter kept on, sitting over the fire, and talking wearily, long after all business was transacted, and when they might just as well have gone upstairs. But Mr. Thornton would not say a word about moving their quarters. He chafed and chafed, and thought Mr. Bell a most prosy companion, while Mr. Bell returned the compliment in secret, by considering Mr. Thornton about as brusque and curt a fellow as he had ever met with, and terribly gone off both in intelligence and manner. At last, some slight noise in the room above suggested the desirableness of moving there. They found Margaret with a letter open before her, eagerly discussing its contents with her father. On the entrance of the gentleman it was immediately put aside, but Mr. Thornton's eager senses caught some few words of Mr. Hale's to Mr. Bell. "'A letter from Henry Lennox. It makes Margaret very hopeful.' Mr. Bell nodded. Margaret was red as a rose when Mr. Thornton looked at her. He had the greatest mind in the world to get up and go out of the room that very instant, and never set foot in the house again. "'We were thinking,' said Mr. Hale, "'that you and Mr. Thornton had taken Margaret's advice, and were each trying to convert each other. You were so long in the study.' "'And you thought there would be nothing left of us but an opinion, like the Kilkenny cat's tail. Pray, whose opinion did you think would have the most obstinate vitality?' Mr. Thornton had not a notion what they were talking about, and disdained to inquire. Mr. Hale politely enlightened him. "'Mr. Thornton, we were accusing Mr. Bell this morning of a kind of Oxonian medieval bigotry against his native town, and we—Margaret, I believe—suggested that it would do him good to associate a little with Milton manufacturers.' "'I beg your pardon.' Margaret thought it would do the Milton manufacturers good to associate a little more with Oxford men. Now wasn't it so, Margaret? 
I believe I thought it would do both good to see a little more of the other, and I did not know it was my idea any more than Papa's. And so you see, Mr. Thornton, we ought to have been improving each other downstairs, instead of talking over vanished families of Smiths and Harrisons. However, I am willing to do my part now. I wonder when you Milton men intend to live. All your lives seem to be spent in gathering together the materials for life. By living, I suppose you mean enjoyment. Yes, enjoyment. I don't specify of what, because I trust we should both consider mere pleasure as very poor enjoyment. I would rather have the nature of enjoyment defined. Well, enjoyment of leisure, enjoyment of the power and influence which money gives. You are all striving for money. What do you want it for? Mr. Thornton was silent. Then he said, I really don't know, but money is not what I strive for. It is a home question. I shall have to lay myself open to such a catechist, and I am not sure that I am prepared to do it. No, said Mr. Hale. Don't let us be personal in our catechism. You are neither of you representative men. You are each of you too individual for that. I am not sure whether to consider that a compliment or not. I should like to be the representative of Oxford, with its beauty and its learning, and its proud old history. What do you say, Margaret? Ought I to be flattered? I don't know, Oxford, but there is a difference between being the representative of a city and the representative man of its inhabitants. Very true, Miss Margaret. Now I remember, you were against me this morning, and were quite Miltonian and manufacturing in your preferences. Margaret saw the quick glance of surprise that Mr. Thornton gave her, and she was annoyed at the construction which he might put on this speech of Mr. Bell's. Mr. Bell went on. Ah, I wish I could show you our High Street, our Radcliffe Square. I'm leaving out our colleges, just as I give Mr. Thornton leave to omit his factories in speaking of the charms of Milton. I have a right to abuse my birthplace. Remember, I'm a Milton man. Mr. Thornton was annoyed more than he ought to have been at all that Mr. Bell was saying. He was not in a mood for joking. At another time he could have enjoyed Mr. Bell's half-testy condemnation of a town where the life was so at variance with every habit he had formed. But now he was galled enough to attempt to defend what was never meant to be seriously attacked. I don't set up Milton as a model of a town. Not in architecture? slyly asked Mr. Bell. No, we've been too busy to attend to mere outward appearances. Don't say mere outward appearances, said Mr. Hale, gently. They impress us all, from childhood upward, every day of our life. Wait a little while, said Mr. Thornton. Remember, we're of a different race from the Greeks, to whom beauty was everything, and to whom Mr. Bell might speak of a life of leisure and serene enjoyment, much of which entered in through their outward senses. I don't mean to despise them, any more than I would ape them. But I belong to Teutonic blood. It is a little mingled in this part of England to what it is in others. We retain much of their language. We retain more of their spirit. We do not look upon life as a time for enjoyment, but as a time for action and exertion. Our glory and our beauty arise out of our inward strength, which makes us victorious over material resistance, and over greater difficulties still. We are Teutonic up here in Darkshire, in another way, 
we hate to have laws made for us at a distance we wish people would allow us to write ourselves instead of continually meddling with their imperfect legislation we stand up for self-government and oppose centralization in short you would like the heptarchy back again well at any rate i revoke what i said this morning that you milton people did not reverence the past you are regular worshippers of thor if we do not reverence the past as you do in oxford it is because we want something which can apply to the present more directly it is fine when the study of the past leads to a prophecy of the future but to men groping in new circumstances it would be finer if the words of experience could direct us how to act in what concerns us most intimately and immediately which is full of difficulties that must be encountered and upon the mode in which they are met and conquered not merely pushed aside for the time depends our future out of the wisdom of the past help us over the present but no people can speak of utopia much more easily than of the next day's duty and yet when that duty is all done by others who so ready to cry fie for shame and all this time i don't see what you're talking about would you milton men condescend to send up your to-day's difficulty to oxford you have not tried us yet mr thornton laughed outright at this i believe i was talking with reference to a good deal that has been troubling us of late i was thinking of the strikes we have gone through which are troublesome and injurious things enough as i am finding to my cost and yet this last strike under which i am smarting has been respectable a respectable strike said mr bell that sounds as if you were far gone in the worship of thor margaret felt rather than saw that mr thornton was chagrined by the repeated turning into jest of what he was feeling as very serious she tried to change the conversation from a subject about which one party cared little while to the other it was deeply because personally interesting she forced herself to say something edith says she finds the printed calicoes in corfu better and cheaper than in london does she said her father i think that must be one of edith's exaggerations are you sure of it margaret i am sure she says so papa then i am sure of the fact said mr bell margaret i go so far in my idea of your truthfulness that it shall cover your cousin's character i don't believe a cousin of yours could exaggerate is miss hale so remarkable for truth said mr thornton bitterly the moment he had done so he could have bitten his tongue out what was he and why should he stab her with shame in this way how evil he was to-night possessed by ill-humour at being detained so long from her irritated by the mention of some name because he thought it belonged to a more successful lover now ill-tempered because he had been unable to cope with a light heart against one who was trying by gay and careless speeches to make the evening pass pleasantly away the kind old friend to all parties whose manner by this time might be well known to mr thornton who had been acquainted with him for many years and then to speak to margaret as he had done she did not get up and leave the room as she had done in former days when his abruptness or his temper had annoyed her she sat quite still after the first momentary glance of grieved surprise that made her eyes look like some child's who has met with an unexpected rebuff 
they slowly dilated into mournful reproachful sadness and then they fell and she bent over her work and did not speak again but he could not help looking at her and he saw a sigh tremble over her body as if she quivered in some unwonted chill he felt as the mother would have done in the midst of her rocking it and rating it had she been called away before her slow confiding smile implying perfect trust in mother's love had proved the renewing of its love he gave short sharp answers he was uneasy and cross unable to discern between jest and earnest anxious only for a look a word of hers before which to prostrate himself in penitent humility but she neither looked nor spoke her round taper fingers flew in and out of her sewing as steadily and swiftly as if that were the business of her life she could not care for him he thought or else the passionate fervour of his wish would have forced her to raise those eyes if but for an instant to read the late repentance in his he could have struck her before he left in order that by some strange overt act of rudeness he might earn the privilege of telling her the remorse that gnawed at his heart it was well that the long walk in the open air wound up this evening for him it sobered him back into grave resolution that henceforth he would see as little of her as possible since the very sight of that face and form the very sounds of that voice like the soft winds of pure melody had such power to move him from his balance well he had known what love was a sharp pang a fierce experience in the midst of whose flames he was struggling but through that furnace he would fight his way out into the serenity of middle age all the richer and more human for having known this great passion when he had somewhat abruptly left the room margaret rose from her seat and began silently to fold up her work the long seams were heavy and had an unusual weight for her languid arms the round lines in her face took a lengthened straighter form and her whole appearance was that of one who had gone through a day of great fatigue as the three prepared for bed mr bell muttered forth a little condemnation of mr thornton i never saw a fellow so spoiled by success he can't bear a word a jest of any kind everything seems to touch on the soreness of his high dignity formerly he was as simple and noble as the open day you could not offend him because he had no vanity he is not vain now said margaret turning round from the table and speaking with quiet distinctness to-night he has not been like himself something must have annoyed him before he came here mr bell gave her one of his sharp glances from above his spectacles she stood it quite calmly but after she had left the room he suddenly asked hale did it ever strike you that thornton and your daughter have what the french call a tendresse for each other never said mr hale first startled and then flurried by the new idea no i am sure you are wrong i am almost certain you are mistaken if there is anything it is all on mr thornton's side poor fellow i hope and trust he is not thinking of her for i am sure she would not have him well i am a bachelor and have steered clear of love affairs all my life so perhaps my opinion is not worth having or else i should say there were very pretty symptoms about her 
then I am sure you are wrong, said Mr. Hale. He may care for her, though she really has been almost rude to him at times. But she, why, Margaret would never think of him, I'm sure. Such a thing has never entered her head. Entering her heart would do, but I merely threw out a suggestion of what might be. I dare say I was wrong. And whether I was wrong or right, I'm very sleepy. So, having disturbed your night's rest, as I can see, with my untimely fancies, I'll betake myself with an easy mind to my own. But Mr. Hale resolved that he would not be disturbed by any such nonsensical idea. So he lay awake, determining not to think about it. Mr. Bell took his leave the next day, bidding Margaret to look to him as one who had a right to help and protect her in all her troubles, of whatever nature they might be. To Mr. Hale he said, "'That Margaret of yours has gone deep into my heart. Take care of her, for she is a very precious creature, a great deal too good for Milton, only fit for Oxford, in fact. The town, I mean, not the men. I can't match her yet.' When I can, I shall bring my young man to stand side by side with your young woman, just as the genie in the Arabian Nights brought Prince Karalmazan to match with the fairy's Princess Badura. I beg you'll do no such thing. Remember the misfortunes that ensued. And besides, I can't spare Margaret. No, on second thoughts, we'll have her to nurse us ten years hence, when we shall be two cross old invalids. Seriously, Hale, I wish you'd leave Milton, which is a most unsuitable place for you, though it was my recommendation in the first instance. If you would, I'd swallow my shadow of doubts, and take a college living, and you and Margaret could come and live at the parsonage. You'd be a sort of lay curate, and take the unwashed off my hands, and she to be our housekeeper, the village lady bountiful, by day, and read us to sleep in the evenings." I could be very happy in such a life. What do you think of it? Never, said Mr. Hale, decidedly. My one great change has been made, and my price of suffering paid. Here I stay out my life, and here I will be buried, and lost in the crowd. I don't give up my plan yet, only I won't bait you with it any more just now. Where's the pearl? Come, Margaret, give me a farewell kiss. And remember, my dear, where you may find a true friend, as far as his capability goes. You are my child, Margaret. Remember that, and God bless you. So they fell back into the monotony of the quiet life they would henceforth lead. There was no invalid to hope and fear about. Even the Higginses, so long a vivid interest, seemed to have receded from any need of immediate thought. The Boucher children, left motherless orphans, claimed what of Margaret's care she could bestow, and she went pretty often to see Mary Higgins, who had charge of them. The two families were living in one house. The elder children were at humble schools. The younger ones were tended, in Mary's absence at her work, by the kind neighbor whose good sense had struck Margaret at the time of Boucher's death. Of course she was paid for her trouble. And, indeed, in all his little plans and arrangements for these orphan children, Nicholas showed a sober judgment and regulated method of thinking, which were at variance with his former, more eccentric jerks of action. He was so steady at his work, that Margaret did not often see him during these winter months. But when she did, 
she saw that he winced away from any reference to the father of those children, whom he had so fully and heartily taken under his care. He did not speak easily of Mr. Thornton. "'To tell the truth,' said he, "'he fairly bamboozles me. He's two chaps. One chap I knowed of old, as were maister all o'er. T'other chap hasn't an ounce of maister's flesh about him. How them two chaps is bound up in one body is a craddy for me to find out. I'll not be beat by it, though. Meanwhile he comes here pretty often. That's how I know the chap that's a man, not a maister. And I reckon he's taken aback by me pretty much as I am by him, for he sits and listens and stares, as if I were some strange beast newly caught in some of the zones. But I'm none daunted. It would take a deal to daunt me in my own house, as he sees. And I tell him some of my mind that I reckon he'd hae been the better for hearing when he were a younger man. "'And does he not answer you?' asked Mr. Hale. "'Well, I'll not say the advantage is all on his side, for all I take credit for improving him above a bit. Sometimes he says a rough thing or two, which is not agreeable to look at at first, but has a queer smack of truth in it when you come to chew it. He'll be coming to-night, I reckon, about them childers schooling. He's not satisfied with the make of it, and wants to examine em. "'What are they?' began Mr. Hale, but Margaret, touching his arm, showed him her watch. "'It's nearly seven, she said. The evenings are getting longer now. Come, Papa.' She did not breathe freely till they were some distance from the house. Then, as she became more calm, she wished that she had not been in so great a hurry, for, somehow, they saw Mr. Thornton but very seldom now, and he might have come to see Higgins, and, for the old friendship's sake, she should like to have seen him to-night. Yes, he came very seldom, even for the dull cold purpose of lessons. Mr. Hale was disappointed in his pupil's lukewarmness about Greek literature, which had but a short time ago so great an interest for him. And now it often happened that a hurried note from Mr. Thornton would arrive, just at the last moment, saying that he was so much engaged that he could not come to read with Mr. Hale that evening, and though other pupils had taken more than his place as to time, no one was like his first scholar in Mr. Hale's heart. He was depressed and sad at this partial cessation of an intercourse which had become dear to him, and he used to sit pondering over the reason that could have occasioned this change. He startled Margaret, one evening as she sat at her work, by suddenly asking, "'Margaret, have you ever any reason for thinking that Mr. Thornton cared for you?' He almost blushed as he put this question, but Mr. Bell's scouted idea recurred to him, and the words were out of his mouth before he well knew what he was about. Margaret did not answer immediately, but by the bent drooping of her head, he guessed what her reply would be. Yes, I believe. Oh, Papa, I should have told you, and she dropped her work and hid her face in her hands. No, dear, don't think that I am impertinently curious. I am sure you would have told me if you had felt that you could return his regard. Did he speak to you about it? No answer at first, but by and by a little gentle reluctant, yes. And you refused him? A long sigh, a more helpless, nervous attitude, and another, yes. But before her father could speak, Margaret lifted up her face, 
rosy with some beautiful shame, and, fixing her eyes upon him, said, "'Now, Papa, I have told you this, and I cannot tell you more. And then the whole thing is so painful to me. Every word and action connected with it is so unspeakably bitter that I cannot bear to think of it. Oh, Papa, I am sorry to have lost you this friend, but I could not help it. But, oh, I am very sorry.' She sat down on the ground and laid her head on his knees. "'I, too, am sorry, my dear. Mr. Bell quite startled me when he said some idea of the kind.' "'Mr. Bell? Oh, did Mr. Bell see it?' "'A little. But he took it into his head that you—how shall I say it—that you were not ungraciously disposed toward Mr. Thornton. I knew that could never be. I hoped the whole thing was but an imagination. But I knew too well what your real feelings were to suppose that you could ever like Mr. Thornton in that way. But I am very sorry. They were very quiet and still for some minutes. But, on stroking her cheek in a caressing way soon after, he was almost shocked to find her face wet with tears. As he touched her, she sprang up, and smiling with forced brightness, began to talk of the Lennoxes with such a vehement desire to turn the conversation that Mr. Hale was too tender-hearted to try to force it back into the old channel. "'Tomorrow, yes, tomorrow they will be back in Harley Street. Oh, how strange it will be! I wonder what room they will make into the nursery. Aunt Shaw will be happy with the baby. Fancy Edith a mamma, and Captain Lennox. I wonder what he will do with himself now he has sold out.' "'I'll tell you what,' said her father, anxious to indulge her in this fresh subject of interest. "'I think I must spare you for a fortnight, just to run up to town and see the travellers. You could learn more, by half an hour's conversation with Mr. Henry Lennox, about Frederick's chances, than a dozen of these letters of his. So it would, in fact, be uniting business with pleasure.' "'No, Papa, you cannot spare me. And what's more, I won't be spared. Then after a long pause, she added, I am losing hope sadly about Frederick. He is letting us down gently. But I can see that Mr. Lennox himself has no hope of hunting up the witnesses under years and years of time. No, said she, that bubble was very pretty and very dear to our hearts, but it has burst like many another. And we must console ourselves with being glad that Frederick is so happy and with being a great deal to each other. So don't offend me by talking of being able to spare me, Papa, for I assure you, you can't. But the idea of a change took root and germinated in Margaret's heart, although not in the way in which her father proposed it at first. She began to consider how desirable something of the kind would be to her father, whose spirits, always feeble, now became too frequently depressed, and whose health, though he never complained, had been seriously affected by his wife's illness and death. There were the regular hours of reading with his pupils, but that all giving and no receiving could no longer be called companionship, as in the old days when Mr. Thornton came to study under him. Margaret was conscious of the want under which he was suffering, unknown to himself, the want of a man's intercourse with men. At Hellstone there had been perpetual occasions for an interchange of visits with neighboring clergymen, and the poor laborers in the fields, 
or leisurely tramping home at eve or tending their cattle in the forest were always at liberty to speak or be spoken to but in milton every one was too busy for quiet speech or any ripened intercourse of thought what they said was about business very present and actual and when the tension of mind relating to their daily affairs was over they sunk into fallow rest until next morning the workman was not to be found after the day's work was done he had gone away to some lecture or some club or some beer-shop according to his degree of character mr hale thought of trying to deliver a course of lectures at some of the institutions but he contemplated doing this so much as an effort of duty and with so little of the genial impulse of love towards his work and its end that margaret was sure that it would not be well done until he could look upon it with some kind of zest End of chapter 40Chapter forty one of North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter forty one. The Journey's End. I see my way as birds their trackless way. I shall arrive. What time, what circuit first, I ask not. But unless God send his hail or blinding fireballs, sleet or stifling snow, in some time, his good time, I shall arrive. He guides me and the bird, in his good time. Browning's Paraclesis So the winter was getting on, and the days were beginning to lengthen, without bringing with them any of the brightness of hope which usually accompanies the rays of a February sun. Mrs. Thornton had of course entirely ceased to come to the house. Mr. Thornton came occasionally, but his visits were addressed to her father, and were confined to the study. Mr. Hale spoke of him as always the same. Indeed, the very rarity of their intercourse seemed to make Mr. Hale set only the higher value on it, and from what Margaret could gather of what Mr. Thornton had said, there was nothing in the cessation of his visits which could arise from any umbrage or vexation. His business affairs had become complicated during the strike and required closer attention than he had given them last winter. Nay, Margaret could even discover that he spoke from time to time of her, and always, as far as she could learn, in the same calm, friendly way, never avoiding, and never seeking any mention of her name. She was not in spirits to raise her father's tone of mind. The dreary peacefulness of the present time had been preceded by so long a period of anxiety and care, even intermixed with storms, that her mind had lost its elasticity. She tried to find herself occupation in teaching the two younger Boucher children, and worked hard at goodness. Hard, I say most truly, for her heart seemed dead to the end of all her efforts, and though she made them punctually and painfully, yet she stood as far off as ever from any cheerfulness. Her life seemed bleak and dreary. The only thing she did well, was what she did out of unconscious piety, the silent comforting and consoling of her father. Not a mood of his, but what found a ready sympathizer in Margaret. Not a wish of his, that she did not strive to forecast and to fulfill. They were quiet wishes, to be sure, and hardly named without hesitation and apology. 
all the more complete and beautiful was her meek spirit of obedience. March brought news of Frederick's marriage. He and Dolores wrote, she in Spanish-English, as was but natural, and he with little turns and inversions of words, which proved how far the idioms of his bride's country were infecting him. On the receipt of Henry Lennox's letter, announcing how little hope there was of his ever clearing himself at a court-martial, in the absence of the missing witnesses, Frederick had written to Margaret a pretty vehement letter, containing his renunciation of England as his country. He wished he could unnative himself, and declared that he would not take his pardon if it were offered, nor live in the country if he had permission to do so. All of which made Margaret cry sorely, so unnatural did it seem to her at the first opening. But on consideration, she saw rather in such expressions the poignancy of the disappointment which had thus crushed his hopes, and she felt that there was nothing for it but patience. In the next letter, Frederick spoke so joyfully of the future that he had no thought for the past, and Margaret found a use in herself for the patience she had been craving for him. She would only have to be patient. But the pretty, timid, girlish letters of Dolores were beginning to have a charm for both Margaret and her father. The young Spaniard was so evidently anxious to make a favorable impression upon her lover's English relations that her feminine care peeped out at every erasure, and the letters announcing the marriage were accompanied by a splendid black lace mantilla chosen by Dolores herself for her unseen sister-in-law, whom Frederick had represented as a paragon of beauty, wisdom, and virtue. Frederick's worldly position was raised by this marriage on to as high a level as they could desire. Barber and Co. was one of the most extensive Spanish houses, and into it he was received as a junior partner. Margaret smiled a little, and then sighed as she remembered afresh her old tirades against trade. Here was her preux chevalier of a brother turned merchant trader. But then she rebelled against herself, and protested silently against the confusion implied between a Spanish merchant and a Milton mill-owner. Well, trade or no trade, Frederick was very, very happy. Dolores must be charming, and the mantilla was exquisite. And then she returned to the present life. Her father had occasionally experienced a difficulty in breathing this spring, which had for the time distressed him exceedingly. Margaret was less alarmed, and this difficulty went off completely in the intervals. But she still was so desirous of his shaking off the liability altogether, as to make her very urgent that he should accept Mr. Bell's invitation to visit him at Oxford this April. Mr. Bell's invitation included Margaret. Nay, more, he wrote a special letter commanding her to come. But she felt as if it would be a great relief to her to remain quietly at home, entirely free from any responsibility whatever, and so to rest her mind and heart in a manner which she had not been able to do for more than two years past. When her father had driven off on his way to the railroad, Margaret felt how great and long had been the pressure on her time and her spirits. It was astonishing, almost stunning, to feel herself so much at liberty, no one depending on her for cheering care, if not for positive happiness, no invalid to plan and think for. She might be idle, and silent, and forgetful, and what seemed worth more than all the other privileges, she might be unhappy if she liked. For months past, all her own personal cares and troubles had had to be stuffed away into a dark cupboard, 
but now she had leisure to take them out and mourn over them and study their nature and seek the true method of subduing them into the elements of peace all these weeks she had been conscious of their existence in a dull kind of way though they were hidden out of sight now once for all she would consider them and appoint to each of them its right work in her life so she sat almost motionless for hours in the drawing-room going over the bitterness of every remembrance with an unwincing resolution only once she cried aloud at the stinging thought of the faithlessness which gave birth to that abasing falsehood she now would not even acknowledge the force of the temptation her plans for frederick had all failed and the temptation lay there a dead mockery a mockery which had never had life in it the lie that had been so despicably foolish seen by the light of the ensuing events and faith in the power of truth so infinitely the greater wisdom in her nervous agitation she unconsciously opened a book of her father's that lay upon the table the words that caught her eye in it seemed almost made for her present state of acute self-abasement je ne veux dois pas rompre mon cerf en ces sortes mais de honte aveugle impudente très très désloyale attendue et semblable chose mais je vous dois la corriger pour voie de compassion au sus mon pauvre coeur nous voilà tombés dans la fosse laquelle nous avions tant résolu d'échapper ah relevons nous et quittons la pour jamais réclamons les miséricordes des dieux espérons elle que nous assistera pour de sommeil extra préfère et retombe nous au chemin de humilité courage the way of humility ah thought margaret that is what i have missed but courage little heart we will turn back and by god's way we may find the lost path she rose up and determined at once to set to on some work which should take her out of herself to begin with she called martha as she passed the drawing-room door in going upstairs and tried to find out what was below the grave respectful servant-like manner which crusted over her individual character with an obedience that was almost mechanical she found it difficult to induce martha to speak of any of her personal interests but at last she touched the right chord in naming mrs thornton martha's whole face brightened and on a little encouragement out came a long story of how her father had been in early life connected with mrs thornton's husband nay had even been in a position to show him some kindness what martha hardly knew for it happened when she was quite a little child and circumstances had intervened to separate the two families until martha was nearly grown up when her father having sunk lower and lower from his original occupation as a clerk in a warehouse and her mother being dead she and her sister to use martha's own expression would have been lost but for mrs thornton who sought them out and thought for them and cared for them i had had a fever and was but delicate but mrs thornton and mr thornton too they never rested till they had nursed me up in their own house and sent me to the sea and all the doctors say the fever was catching but they cared none for that only miss fanny and she went to visiting these folks that she is going to marry into so though she was afraid at the time it has all ended well miss fanny is going to be married exclaimed margaret yes and to a rich gentleman too only he's a deal older than she is his name is watson 
and his mills are somewhere out beyond Haley. It's a very good marriage, for all he's got such grey hair. At this piece of information, Margaret was silent long enough for Martha to recover her propriety, and with it her habitual shortness of answer. She swept up the hearth, asked at what time she should prepare tea, and quitted the room with the same wooden face with which she had entered it. Margaret had to pull herself up from indulging in a bad trick, which she had lately fallen into, of trying to imagine how every event that she heard of in relation to Mr. Thornton would affect him, whether he would like it or dislike it. Next day she had the little Boucher children for their lessons, and took a long walk, and ended by a visit to Mary Higgins. Somewhat to Margaret's surprise, she found Nicholas already come home from his work. The lengthening light had deceived her as to the lateness of the evening. He, too, seemed, by his manners, to have entered a little more on the way of humility. He was quieter, and less self-asserting. "'So to our gentleman is away on his travels, is he?' said he. "'Little uns telled me so. Eh, but they're sharp uns, they are. I almost think they beat my own winches for sharpness, though mappin it's wrong to say so, and one on em in her grave. There's summit in the weather, I reckon, a sets folks a-wanderin'. My maester, him at the shop yonder, is spinnin' bout the world somewhere.' "'Is that the reason you're home so soon to-night?' asked Margaret innocently. "'Thou knowst not about it, that's all,' said he contemptuously. I'm not we two faces, one for my maester, and t'other for his back. I counted a the clocks in town strikin', afore I'd leave my work. No, yon Thornton's good enough for to fight we, but too good for to be cheated. It were you as getting me the place, and I thank you for it. Thornton's is not a bad mill, as times go. Stand down, lad, and say your pretty hymn to Miss Margaret. That's right, steady on their legs and right arm out as straight as a shore. One to stop, two to stay, three make ready, and four away. The little fellow repeated a Methodist hymn, far above his comprehension in point of language, but of which the swinging rhythm had caught his ear, and which he repeated with all the developed cadence of a member of Parliament. When Margaret had duly applauded, Nicholas called for another, and yet another, much to her surprise, as she found him thus oddly and unconsciously led to take an interest in the sacred things which he had formerly scouted. It was past the usual tea-time when she reached home, but she had the comfort of feeling that no one had been kept waiting for her, and of thinking her own thoughts while she rested, instead of anxiously watching another person to learn whether to be grave or gay. After tea she resolved to examine a large packet of letters and pick out those that were to be destroyed. Among them she came to four or five of Mr. Henry Lennox's, relating to Frederick's affairs, and she carefully read them over again, with the sole intention, when she began, to ascertain exactly on how fine a chance the justification of her brother hung. But when she had finished the last, and weighed the pros and cons, the little personal revelation of character contained in them forced itself on her notice. It was evident enough, from the stiffness of the wording, that Mr. Lennox had never forgotten his relation to her in any interest he might feel in the subject of the correspondence. They were clever letters, Margaret saw that in a twinkling, but she missed out of them all hearty and genial atmosphere. They were to be preserved, however, as valuable, so she laid them carefully on one side. When this little piece of business was ended, she fell into a reverie, and the thought of her absent father ran strangely in Margaret's head this night. 
she almost blamed herself for having felt her solitude, and consequently his absence, as a relief. But these two days had set her up afresh, with new strength and brighter hope. Plans which had lately appeared to her in the guise of tasks, now appeared like pleasures. The morbid scales had fallen from her eyes, and she saw her position and her work more truly. If only Mr. Thornton would restore her the lost friendship! Nay, if he would only come from time to time to cheer her father as in former days, though she should never see him, she felt as if the course of her future life, though not brilliant in prospect, might lie clear and even before her. She sighed as she rose up to go to bed. In spite of the, one step's enough for me, in spite of the one plain duty of devotion to her father, there lay at her heart an anxiety and a pang of sorrow. And Mr. Hale thought of Margaret that April evening, just as strangely and persistently as she was thinking of him. He had been fatigued by going out among his old friends and old familiar places. He had had exaggerated ideas of the change which his altered opinions might make in his friend's reception of him, but although some of them might have felt shocked or grieved or indignant at his falling off in the abstract, as soon as they saw the face of the man whom they had once loved, they forgot his opinions in himself, or only remembered them enough to give an additional tender gravity to their manner. For Mr. Hale had not been known to many. He had belonged to one of the smaller colleges, and had always been shy and reserved. But those who in youth had cared to penetrate the delicacy of thought and feeling that lay below his silence and indecision, took him to their hearts, with something of the protecting kindness which they would have shown to a woman. And the renewal of this kindness, after the lapse of years, and an interval of so much change, overpowered him more than any roughness or expression of disapproval could have done. "'I'm afraid we've done too much,' said Mr. Bell. "'You're suffering now from having lived so long in the Milton air.' "'I am tired,' said Mr. Hale. "'But it's not Milton air. I'm fifty-five years of age, and that little fact of itself accounts for any loss of strength.' "'Nonsense! I'm upwards of sixty, and feel no loss of strength, either bodily or mental. Don't let me hear you talking so. Fifty-five! Why, you're quite a young man. Mr. Hale shook his head. These last few years, said he, but after a minute's pause, he raised himself from his half-recumbent position, in one of Mr. Bell's luxurious easy-chairs, and said with a kind of trembling earnestness, Bell, you're not to think, that if I could have foreseen all that would come of my change of opinion, and my resignation of my living, no, not even if I could have known how she would have suffered, that I would undo it. The act of open acknowledgment that I no longer held the same faith as the church in which I was a priest. As I think now, even if I could have foreseen that cruelest martyrdom of suffering, through the sufferings of one whom I loved, I would have done just the same as far as that step of openly leaving the church went. I might have done differently and acted more wisely, in all that I subsequently did for my family. But I don't think God endued me with overmuch wisdom or strength," he added, falling back into his old position. Mr. Bell blew his nose ostentatiously before answering. Then he said, "'He gave you strength to do what your conscience told you was right, and I don't see that we need any higher or holier strength than that, or wisdom, either.' 
I know I have not that much. And yet men set me down in their fool's books as a wise man, an independent character, strong-minded, and all that cant. The veriest idiot who obeys his own simple laws of right, if it be but in wiping his shoes on a doormat, is wiser and stronger than I. But what gulls men are! There was a pause. Mr. Hale spoke first, in continuation of his thought. About Margaret. Well, about Margaret. What, then? If I die. Nonsense! What will become of her, I often think. I suppose the Lennoxes will ask her to live with them. I try to think they will. Her Aunt Shaw loved her well in her own quiet way. But she forgets to love the absent. A very common fault. What sort of people are the Lennoxes? He, handsome, fluent, and agreeable. Edith, a little spoiled beauty. Margaret loves her with all her heart, and Edith with as much of her heart as she can spare. Now, Hale, you know that girl of yours has got pretty nearly all my heart. I told you that before. Of course, as your daughter, as my goddaughter, I took great interest in her before I saw her the last time. But this visit that I paid to you at Milton made me her slave. I went, a willing old victim, following the car of the conqueror. For, indeed, she looks as grand and serene as one who has struggled, and may be struggling, and yet has the victory secure in sight. Yes, in spite of all her present anxieties, that was the look on her face. And so, all I have is at her service, if she needs it, and will be hers, whether she will or no, when I die. Moreover, I myself will be her pre chevalier, sixty and gouty though I be. Seriously, old friend, your daughter shall be my principal charge in life, and all the help that either my wit or my wisdom, or my willing heart can give, shall be hers. I don't choose her out as a subject for fretting. Something, I know of old, you must have to worry yourself about, or you wouldn't be happy. But you're going to outlive me by many a long year. You spare thin men are always tempting and always cheating death. It's the stout, florid fellows like me that always go off first. If Mr. Bell had had a prophetic eye, he might have seen the torch all but inverted, and the angel with the grave and composed face standing very nigh, beckoning to his friend. That night Mr. Hale laid his head down on the pillow, on which it never more should stir with life. The servant who entered his room in the morning received no answer to his speech, drew near the bed, and saw the calm, beautiful face lying white and cold under the ineffaceable seal of death. The attitude was exquisitely easy. There had been no pain, no struggle. The action of the heart must have ceased as he lay down. Mr. Bell was stunned by the shock, and only recovered when the time came for being angry at every suggestion of his man's. A coroner's inquest! Pooh! You don't think I poisoned him. Dr. Forbes says it's just the natural end of a heart complaint. Poor old Hale! You wore out that tender heart of yours before its time. Poor old friend! How he talked of his— Wallace, pack up a carpet-bag for me in five minutes. Here I have been talking. Pack it up, I say. 
I must go to Milton by the next train. The bag was packed, the cab ordered, the railway reached, in twenty minutes from the moment of this decision. The London train whizzed by, drew back some yards, and in Mr. Bell was hurried by the impatient guard. He threw himself back in his seat, to try, with closed eyes, to understand how one in life yesterday could be dead to-day, and shortly tears stole out between his grizzled eyelashes, at the feeling of which he opened his keen eyes, and looked as severely cheerful as his set determination could make him. He was not going to blubber before a set of strangers, not he. There was no set of strangers, only one sitting far from him on the same side. By and by Mr. Bell peered at him, to discover what manner of man it was that might have been observing his emotion, and behind the great sheet of the outspread times he recognized Mr. Thornton. "'Why, Thornton, is that you?' he said, removing hastily to a closer proximity. He shook Mr. Thornton vehemently by the hand, until the grip ended in a sudden relaxation, for the hand was wanted to wipe away tears. He had last seen Mr. Thornton in his friend Hale's company. "'I'm going to Milton, bound on a melancholy errand, going to break to Hale's daughter the news of his sudden death.' "'Death? Mr. Hale dead?' "'I, I keep saying it to myself. Hale is dead. But it doesn't make it any the more real. Hale is dead for all that.' He went to bed well, to all appearance, last night, and was quite cold this morning when my servant went to call him. Where? I don't understand. At Oxford. He came to stay with me. Hadn't been in Oxford these seventeen years. And this is the end of it. Not a word was spoken for above a quarter of an hour. Then Mr. Thornton said, And she, and stopped full short. Margaret, you mean? Yes, I am going to tell her. Poor fellow! How full his thoughts were of her all last night! Good God! Last night only! And how immeasurably distant he is now! But I take Margaret as my child for his sake. I said last night I would take her for her own sake. Well, I take her for both. Mr. Thornton made one or two fruitless attempts to speak, before he could get out the words. What will become of her? I rather fancy there will be two people waiting for her. Myself, for one. I would take a live dragon into my house to live, if, by hiring such a chaperone, and setting up an establishment of my own, I could make my old age happy with having Margaret for a daughter. But there are those Lennoxes. Who are they? asked Mr. Thornton, with trembling interest. Oh, smart London people, who very likely will think they've the best right to her. Captain Lennox married her cousin, a girl she was brought up with. Good enough people, I dare say. And there's her aunt, Mrs. Shaw. There might be a way open, perhaps, by my offering to marry that worthy lady. But that would be quite a pisselet. And then there's that brother. What brother? A brother of her aunt's. No, no. A clever Lennox. The captain's a fool, you must understand. A young barrister, who will be setting his cap at Margaret. I know he has had her in mind this five years or more. One of his chums told me as much, and he was only kept back by her want of fortune. 
now that will be done away with how asked mr thornton too earnestly curious to be aware of the impertinence of his question why she'll have my money at my death and if this henry lennox is half good enough for her and she likes him well i might find another way of getting a home through a marriage i'm dreadfully afraid of being tempted at an unguarded moment by the aunt neither mr bell nor mr thornton was in a laughing humour so the oddity of any of the speeches which the former made was unnoticed by them mr bell whistled without emitting any sound beyond a long hissing breath changed his seat without finding comfort or rest while mr thornton sat immovably still his eyes fixed on one spot in the newspaper which he had taken up in order to give himself leisure to think where have you been asked mr bell at length to havre trying to detect the secret of the great rise in the price of cotton ugh cotton and speculations and smoke well cleansed and well cared for machinery and unwashed and neglected hands poor old hale poor old hale if you could have known the change which it was to him from hellstone do you know the new forest at all yes very shortly then you can fancy the difference between it and milton what part were you in were you ever at hellstone a little picturesque village something like the odenwald you know hellstone i have seen it it was a great change to leave it and come to milton he took up his newspaper with a determined air as if resolved to avoid further conversation and mr bell was fain to resort to his former occupation of trying to find out how he could best break the news to margaret she was at an upstairs window she saw him alight she guessed the truth with an instinctive flash she stood in the middle of the drawing-room as if arrested in her first impulse to rush downstairs and as if by the same restraining thought she had been turned to stone so white and immovable was she oh don't tell me i know it from your face you would have sent you would not have left him if he were alive oh papa papa end of chapter 41、Chapter、Forty-Two Alone, Alone When some beloved voice that was to you both sound and sweetness faileth suddenly, and silence against which you dare not cry aches round you like a strong disease and new what hope what help what music will undo that silence to your sense mrs browning the shock had been great margaret fell into a state of prostration which did not show itself in sobs and tears or even find the relief of words she lay on the sofa with her eyes shut never speaking but when spoken to and then replying in whispers mr bell was perplexed he dared not leave her he dared not ask her to accompany him back to oxford which had been one of the plans he had formed on the journey to milton 
Her physical exhaustion was evidently too complete for her to undertake any such fatigue, putting the sight that she would have to encounter out of the question. Mr. Bell sat over the fire, considering what he had better do. Margaret lay motionless and almost breathless by him. He would not leave her, even for the dinner which Dixon had prepared for him downstairs, and, with sobbing hospitality, would fain have tempted him to eat. He had a plateful of something brought up to him. In general he was particular and dainty enough, and knew well each shade of flavor in his food, but now the deviled chicken tasted like sawdust. He minced up some of the fowl for Margaret, and peppered and salted it well, but when Dixon, following his directions, tried to feed her, the languid shake of head proved that in such a state as Margaret was in, food would only choke, not nourish her. Mr. Bell gave a great sigh, lifted up his stout old limbs, stiff with traveling, from their easy position, and followed Dixon out of the room. "'I can't leave her. I must write to them at Oxford to see that the preparations are made. They can be getting on with these till I arrive. Can't Mrs. Lennox come to her? I'll write and tell her she must. The girl must have some woman friend about her, if only to talk her into a good fit of crying.' Dixon was crying, enough for two, but, after wiping her eyes and steadying her voice, she managed to tell Mr. Bell that Mrs. Lennox was too near her confinement to be able to undertake any journey at present. "'Well, I suppose we must have Mrs. Shaw. She's come back to England, isn't she?' "'Yes, sir, she's come back, but I don't think she will like to leave Mrs. Lennox at such an interesting time,' said Dixon who did not much approve of a stranger entering the household to share with her in her ruling care of Margaret. "'Interesting time be—' <clears throat> Mr. Bell restricted himself to coughing over the end of his sentence. "'She could be content to be at Venice or Naples, or some of those popish places, at the last interesting time, which took place in Corfu, I think. And what does that little prosperous woman's interesting time signify?' in comparison with that poor creature there, that helpless, homeless, friendless Margaret, lying as still on that sofa as if it were an altar-tomb, and she the stone statue on it. I tell you, Mrs. Shaw shall come. See that a room, or whatever she wants, is got ready for her by to-morrow night. I'll take care she comes. Accordingly, Mr. Bell wrote a letter, which Mrs. Shaw declared, with many tears, to be so like one of the dear generals when he was going to have a fit of the gout, that she should always value and preserve it. If he had given her the option, by requesting or urging her, as if a refusal were possible, she might not have come. True and sincere as was her sympathy with Margaret, it needed the sharp, uncourteous command to make her conquer her vis inertiae, and allow herself to be packed up by her maid, after the latter had completed the boxes. Edith, all cap, shawls, and tears, came out to the top of the stairs, as Captain Lennox was taking her mother down to the carriage. "'Don't forget, Mamma. Margaret must come and live with us. Sholto will go to Oxford on Wednesday, and you must send word by Mr. Bell to him when we're to expect you. And if you want Sholto, he can go on from Oxford to Milton.' Don't forget, Mamma, you are to bring back Margaret. Edith re-entered the drawing-room. Mr. Henry Lennox was there, 
cutting open the pages of a new review. Without lifting his head, he said, "'If you don't like Sholto to be so long absent from you, Edith, I hope you would let me go down to Milton and give what assistance I can.' "'Oh, thank you,' said Edith. "'I dare say old Mr. Bell will do everything he can, and more help me not be needed. Only one does not look for much savoir-faire from a resident fellow.' "'Dear, darling Margaret, won't it be nice to have her here again? You were both great allies, years ago.' "'Were we?' asked he indifferently, with an appearance of being interested in a passage in the review. "'Well, perhaps not. I forget. I was so full of Sholto. But doesn't it fall out well, that if my uncle was to die, it should be just now, when we are come home, and settled in the old house, and quite ready to receive Margaret?' Poor thing! What a change it will be to her from Milton! I'll have new chintz for her bedroom, and make it look new and bright, and cheer her up a little." In the same spirit of kindness Mrs. Shaw journeyed to Milton, occasionally dreading the first meeting, and wondering how it would be got over, but more frequently planning how soon she could get Margaret away from that horrid place, and back into the pleasant comforts of Harley Street. "'Oh, dear!' she said to her maid look at those chimneys. My poor sister Hale! I don't think I could have rested at Naples if I had known what it was. I must have come and fetched her and Margaret away. And to herself she acknowledged that she had always thought her brother-in-law rather a weak man, but never so weak as now, when she saw for what a place he had exchanged the lovely Hellstone home. Margaret had remained in the same state, white, motionless, speechless, tearless. They had told her that her Aunt Shaw was coming, but she had not expressed either surprise or pleasure, or dislike to the idea. Mr. Bell, whose appetite had returned, and who appreciated Dixon's endeavours to gratify it, in vain urged upon her to taste some sweetbreads stewed with oysters. She shook her head with the same quiet obstinacy as on the previous day, and he was obliged to console himself for her rejection by eating them all himself. But Margaret was the first to hear the stopping of the cab that brought her aunt from the railway station. Her eyelids quivered, her lips coloured and trembled. Mr. Bell went down to meet Mrs. Shaw, and when they came up, Margaret was standing, trying to steady her dizzy self. And when she saw her aunt, she went forward to the arms open to receive her, and first found the passionate relief of tears on her aunt's shoulder. All thoughts of quiet habitual love of tenderness for years, of relationship to the dead, all that inexplicable likeness in look, tone, and gesture that seemed to belong to one family, and which reminded Margaret so forcibly at this moment of her mother, came in to melt and soften her numbed heart into the overflow of warm tears. Mr. Bell stole out of the room and went down into the study, where he ordered a fire, and tried to divert his thoughts by taking down and examining the different books. Each volume brought a remembrance or a suggestion of his dead friend. It might be a change of employment from his two days' work of watching Margaret, but it was no change of thought. He was glad to catch the sound of Mr. Thornton's voice, making inquiry at the door. Dixon was rather cavalierly dismissing him for with the appearance of Mrs. Shaw's maid came visions of former grandeur, of the Beersford blood, of the station, 
so she was pleased to term it, from which her young lady had been ousted, and to which she was now, please God, to be restored. These visions, which she had been dwelling on with complacency in her conversation with Mrs. Shaw's maid, skilfully eliciting meanwhile all the circumstances of state and consequence connected with the Harley Street establishment, for the edification of the listening Martha, made Dixon rather inclined to be supercilious in her treatment of any inhabitant of Milton. So, though she always stood rather in awe of Mr. Thornton, she was as curt as she durst be, in telling him that he could see none of the inmates of the house that night. It was rather uncomfortable to be contradicted in her statement by Mr. Bell's opening the study door, and calling out, "'Thornton, is that you? Come in for a minute or two. I want to speak to you.' So Mr. Thornton went into the study, and Dixon had to retreat into the kitchen, and reinstate herself in her own esteem by a prodigious story of Sir John Beersford's coach and six, when he was high sheriff. I don't know what I wanted to say to you after all. Only it's dull enough to sit in a room where everything speaks to you of a dear friend. Yet Margaret and her aunt must have the drawing-room to themselves. Is Mrs. Is her aunt come? asked Mr. Thornton. Come? Yes. Maid and all. One would have thought she might have come by herself at such a time. And now I shall have to turn out and find my way to the Clarendon. You must not go to the Clarendon. We have five or six empty bedrooms at home. Well aired. I think you may trust my mother for that. Then I'll only run upstairs and wish that wan girl good night, and make my bow to her aunt, and go off with you straight. Mr. Bell was some time upstairs. Mr. Thornton began to think it long, for he was full of business, and had hardly been able to spare the time for running up to Crampton and inquiring how Miss Hale was. When they had set out upon their walk, Mr. Bell said, "'I was kept by those women in the drawing-room. Mrs. Shaw is anxious to get home, on account of her daughter, she says, and wants Margaret to go off with her at once. Now she is no more fit for travelling than I am for flying. Besides, she says, and very justly, that she has friends she must see.' that she must wish good-bye to several people. And then her aunt worried her about old claims, and was she forgetful of old friends? And she said, with a great burst of crying, she should be glad enough to go from a place where she had suffered so much. Now I must return to Oxford to-morrow, and I don't know on which side of the scale to throw in my voice. He paused, as if asking a question, but he received no answer from his companion the echo of whose thoughts kept repeating, "'Where she has suffered so much.' Alas! And that was the way in which this eighteen months in Milton, to him so unspeakably precious, down to its very bitterness, which was worth all the rest of life's sweetness, would be remembered. Neither loss of father nor loss of mother, dear as she was to Mr. Thornton, could have poisoned the remembrance of the weeks, the days, the hours, when a walk of two miles, every step of which was pleasant, as it brought him nearer and nearer to her, took him to her sweet presence, every step of which was rich, as each recurring moment that bore him away from her made him recall some fresh grace in her demeanour, or pleasant pungency in her character. Yes, whatever had happened to him, external to his relation to her, he could never have spoken of that time, 
when he could have seen her every day, when he had her within his grasp, as it were, as a time of suffering. It had been a royal time of luxury to him, with all its stings and contumelies, compared to the poverty that crept round and clipped the anticipation of the future down to sordid fact, and life without an atmosphere of either hope or fear. Mrs. Thornton and Fanny were in the dining-room, the latter in a flurry of small exultation, as the maid held up one glossy material after another, to try the effect of the wedding-dresses by candlelight. Her mother really tried to sympathize with her, but could not. Neither taste nor dress were in her line of subjects, and she heartily wished that Fanny had accepted her brother's offer of having the wedding-clothes provided by some first-rate London dressmaker, without the endless troublesome discussions, unsettled wavering, that arose out of Fanny's desire to choose and superintend everything herself. Mr. Thornton was only too glad to mark his grateful approbation of any sensible man who could be captivated by Fanny's second-rate airs and graces, by giving her ample means for providing herself with the finery which certainly rivalled, if it did not exceed, the lover in her estimation. When her brother and Mr. Bell came in, Fanny blushed and simpered, and fluttered over the signs of her employment, in a way which could not have failed to draw attention from any one else but Mr. Bell. If he thought about her and her silks and satins at all, it was to compare her and them with the pale sorrow he had left behind him, sitting motionless, with bent head and folded hands, in a room where the stillness was so great that you might almost fancy the rush in your straining ears was occasioned by the spirits of the dead, yet hovering round their beloved. For, when Mr. Bell had first gone upstairs, Mrs. Shaw lay asleep on the sofa, and no sound broke the silence. Mrs. Thornton gave Mr. Bell her formal, hospitable welcome. She was never so gracious as when receiving her son's friends in her son's house, and the more unexpected they were, the more honour to her admirable housekeeping preparations for comfort. "'How is Miss Hale?' she asked. "'About as broken down by this last stroke as she can be.' "'I am sure it is very well for her that she has such a friend as you.' "'I wish I were her only friend, madam. I dare say it sounds very brutal.' but here have I been displaced, and turned out of my post of comforter and adviser by a fine lady aunt, and there are cousins and what not claiming her in London, as if she were a lapdog belonging to them, and she is too weak and miserable to have a will of her own. She must indeed be weak, said Mrs. Thornton, with an implied meaning which her son understood well. But where, continued Mrs. Thornton, have these relations been all this time that Miss Hale has appeared almost friendless, and has certainly had a good deal of anxiety to bear? But she did not feel interest enough in the answer to her question to wait for it. She left the room to make her household arrangements. They have been living abroad. They have some kind of claim upon her. I will do them that justice. The aunt brought her up, and she and the cousin have been like sisters. The thing vexing me, you see, is that I wanted to take her for a child of my own, and I am jealous of these people, who don't seem to value the privilege of their right. Now it would be different if Frederick claimed her. Frederick, exclaimed Mr. Thornton. Who is he? What right? He stopped short in his vehement question. Frederick, said Mr. Bell in surprise. Why, don't you know? He's her brother. 
have you not heard i never heard his name before where is he who is he surely i told you about him when the family first came to milton the son who was concerned in that mutiny i never heard of him till this moment where does he live in spain he's liable to be arrested the moment he sets foot on english ground poor fellow he will grieve at not being able to attend his father's funeral we must be content with captain lennox for i don't know of any other relation to summon i hope i may be allowed to go certainly thankfully you're a good fellow after all thornton hale liked you he spoke to me only the other day about you at oxford he regretted that he had seen so little of you lately i am obliged to you for wishing to show him respect but about frederick does he never come to england never he was not over here about the time of mrs hale's death no why i was here then i hadn't seen hale for years and years and if you remember i came no it was some time after that that i came but poor frederick hale was not here then what made you think he was i saw a young man walking with miss hale one day replied mr thornton and i think it was about that time oh that would be this young lennox the captain's brother he's a lawyer and they were in pretty constant correspondence with him and i remember mr hale told me he thought he would come down do you know said mr bell wheeling round and shutting one eye the better to bring the forces of the other to bear with keen scrutiny on mr thornton's face that i once fancied you had a little tenderness for margaret no answer no change of countenance and so did poor hale not at first and not till i had put it into his head i admired miss hale every one must do so she is a beautiful creature said mr thornton driven to bay by mr bell's pertinacious questioning is that all you can speak of her in that measured way as simply a beautiful creature only something to catch the eye i did hope you had had nobleness enough in you to make you pay her the homage of the heart though i believe in fact i know she would have rejected you still to have loved her without return would have lifted you higher than all those be they who they may that have never known her to love beautiful creature indeed do you speak of her as you would of a horse or a dog mr thornton's eyes glowed like red embers mr bell said he before you speak so you should remember that all men are not as free to express what they feel as you are let us talk of something else for though his heart leaped up as at a trumpet call to every word that mr bell had said and though he knew that what he had said would henceforth bind the thought of the old oxford fellow closely up with the most precious things of his heart yet he would not be forced into any expression of what he felt towards margaret he was no mocking-bird of praise to try because another extolled what he reverenced and passionately loved to outdo him in laudation so he turned to some of the dry matters of business that lay between mr bell and him as landlord and tenant what is that heap of brick and mortar we came against in the yard any repairs wanted no none thank you are you building on your own account if you are i am very much obliged to you 
I'm building a dining-room. For the men. I mean, the hands. I thought you were hard to please. If this room wasn't good enough to satisfy you, a bachelor. I've got acquainted with a strange kind of chap, and I put one or two children in whom he is interested to school. So as I happened to be passing near his house one day, I just went there about some trifling payment to be made. And I saw such a miserable black frizzle of a dinner, a greasy cinder of meat, as first set me a-thinking. But it was not till provisions grew so high this winter that I bethought me how, by buying things wholesale, and cooking a good quantity of provisions together, much money might be saved, and much comfort gained. So I spoke to my friend, or my enemy, the man I told you of, and he found fault with every detail of my plan, and in consequence I laid it aside, both as impractical, and also because if I forced it into operation I should be interfering with the independence of my men. When, suddenly, this Higgins came to me, and graciously signified his approval of a scheme so nearly the same as mine, that I might fairly have claimed it, and, moreover, the approval of several of his fellow workmen, to whom he had spoken. I was a little riled, I confess, by his manner, and thought of throwing the whole thing overboard to sink or swim. But it seemed childish to relinquish a plan which I had once thought wise and well laid, just because I myself did not receive all the honour and consequence due to the originator. So I coolly took the part assigned me, which is something like that of a steward to a club. I buy the provisions wholesale, and provide a fitting matron or cook. I hope you give satisfaction in your new capacity. Are you a good judge of potatoes and onions? But I suppose Mrs. Thornton assists you in your marketing. Not a bit, replied Mr. Thornton. She disapproves of the whole plan, and now we never mention it to each other. But I manage pretty well, getting in great stocks from Liverpool, and being served in butcher's meat by our own family butcher. I can assure you, the hot dinners the matron turns out are by no means to be despised. Do you taste each dish as it goes in, in virtue of your office? I hope you have a white wand. I was very scrupulous, at first, in confining myself to the mere purchasing part, and even in that I rather obeyed the men's orders conveyed through the housekeeper, than went by my own judgment. At one time the beef was too large, at another the mutton was not fat enough. I think they saw how careful I was to leave them free, and not to intrude my own ideas upon them. So, one day, two or three of the men, my friend Higgins among them, asked me if I would not come in and take a snack. It was a very busy day, but I saw that the men would be hurt if, after making the advance, I didn't meet them half-way. So I went in, and I never made a better dinner in my life. I told them—my next neighbors, I mean, for I'm no speech-maker—how much I'd enjoyed it, and for some time, whenever that especial dinner reoccurred in their dietary, I was sure to be met by these men with a, Master, there's hot pot for dinner to-day. When you come? If they had not asked me, I would no more have intruded on them than I would have gone to the mess at the barracks without invitation. I should think you were rather a restraint on your host's conversation. They can't abuse the masters while you're there. I suspect they take it out on non-hot pot days. Well, hitherto we've steered clear of all vexed questions. But if any of the old disputes came up again, I would certainly speak out my mind next hot-pot day. But you are hardly acquainted with our Darkshire fellows, for all you are a Darkshire man yourself, 
they have such a sense of humour and such a racy mode of expression i am getting really to know some of them now and they talk pretty freely before me nothing like the act of eating for equalizing men dying is nothing to it the philosopher dies sententiously the pharisee ostentatiously the simple-hearted humbly the poor idiot blindly as the sparrow falls to the ground the philosopher and idiot publican and pharisee all eat after the same fashion given an equally good digestion there's theory for theory for you indeed i have no theory i hate theories i beg your pardon to show my penitence will you accept a ten-pound note towards your marketing and give the poor fellows a feast thank you but i'd rather not they pay me rent for the oven and cooking places at the back of the mill and will have to pay more for the new dining-room i don't want it to fall into a charity i don't want donations once let in the principal and i should have people going and talking and spoiling the simplicity of the whole thing people will talk about any new plan you can't help that my enemies if i have any may make a philanthropic fuss about this dinner scheme but you are a friend and i expect you will pay my experiment the respect of silence it is but a new broom at present and sweeps clean enough but by and by we shall meet with plenty of stumbling blocks no doubt End of chapter 42「forty three of North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter forty three. Margaret's Flitton. The meanest thing to which we bid adieu loses its meanness in the parting hour. Elliot. Mrs. Shaw took as vehement a dislike as it was possible for one of her gentle nature to do against Milton. It was noisy and smoky, and the poor people whom she saw in the streets were dirty, and the rich ladies overdressed, and not a man that she saw, high or low, had his clothes made to fit him. She was sure Margaret would never regain her lost strength while she stayed in Milton, and she herself was afraid of one of her old attacks of the nerves. Margaret must return with her, and that quickly. This, if not the exact force of her words, was at any rate the spirit of what she urged upon margaret until the latter weak weary and broken-spirited yielded a reluctant promise that as soon as wednesday was over she would prepare to accompany her aunt back to town leaving dixon in charge of all the arrangements for paying bills disposing of furniture and shutting up the house before that wednesday that mournful wednesday when mr hale was to be interred far away from either of the homes he had known in life and far away from the wife who lay lonely among strangers. And this last was Margaret's great trouble, for she thought that if she had not given way to that overwhelming stupor during the first sad days, she could have arranged things otherwise. Before that Wednesday, Margaret received a letter from Mr. Bell. My dear Margaret, I did mean to have returned to Milton on Thursday, but unluckily it turns out to be one of the rare occasions when we Plymouth fellows— are called upon to perform any kind of duty, and I must not be absent from my post. Captain Lennox and Mr. Thornton are here. The former seems a smart, well-meaning man, and has proposed to go over to Milton and assist you in any search for the will. 
Of course there is none, or you would have found it by this time, if you followed my directions. Then the captain declares that he must take you and his mother-in-law home, and, in his wife's present state, I don't see how you can expect him to remain any longer than Friday. However, that Dixon of yours is trusty, and can hold her, if not your own, till I come. I will put matters into the hands of my Milton attorney, if there is no will, for I doubt this smart captain is no great man of business. Nevertheless, his mustachios are splendid. There will have to be a sale, so select what things you wish reserved, or you can send a list afterwards. Now, two things more, and I have done. You know, or if you don't, your poor father did, that you are to have my money and goods when I die. Not that I mean to die yet, but I name this just to explain what is coming. These Lennoxes seem very fond of you, now, and perhaps may continue to be, perhaps not, so it is best to start with a formal agreement, namely, that you will pay them two hundred and fifty pounds a year, as long as you and they find it pleasant to live together. This, of course, includes Dixon. Mind you, don't be cajoled into paying any more for her. Then you won't be thrown adrift, if some day the captain wishes to have his house to himself, but you can carry yourself and your two hundred and fifty pounds off somewhere else, if, indeed, I have not claimed you to come and keep house for me first. Then, as to dress, and Dixon, and personal expenses, and confectionery, all young ladies eat confectionery till wisdom comes by age, I shall consult some lady of my acquaintance, and see how much you will have from your father before fixing this. Now, Margaret, have you flown out before you have read this far, and wondered what right the old man has to settle your affairs for you so cavalierly? I make no doubt you have. Yet the old man has a right. He has loved your father for five and thirty years. He stood beside him on his wedding day. He closed his eyes in death. Moreover, he is your godfather, and as he cannot do you much good spiritually, having a hidden consciousness of your superiority in such things, he would fain to do you the poor good of endowing you materially. And the old man has not a known relation on earth. Who is there to mourn for Adam Bell? And his whole heart is set and bent upon this one thing. And Margaret Hale is not the girl to say him nay. Write by return, if only two lines, to tell me your answer. But no thanks. Margaret took up a pen and scrawled with trembling hand, Margaret Hale is not the girl to say him nay. In her weak state she could not think of any other words, and yet she was vexed to use these. But she was so much fatigued, even by this slight exertion, that if she could have thought of another form of acceptance, she could not have sat up to write a syllable of it. She was obliged to lie down again, and try not to think. "'My dearest child, has that letter vexed or troubled you?' "'No,' said Margaret feebly. I shall be better when to-morrow is over. I feel sure, darling, you won't be better till I get you out of this horrid air. How you can have borne it this two years I can't imagine. Where could I go? I could not leave Papa and Mamma. Well, don't distress yourself, my dear. I dare say it was all for the best, only I had no conception of how you were living. Our butler's wife lives in a better house than this. It is sometimes very pretty, in summer. You can't judge by what it is now. I have been very happy here. 
and Margaret closed her eyes by way of stopping the conversation. The house teemed with comfort now, compared to what it had done. The evenings were chilly, and by Mrs. Shaw's directions fires were lighted in every bedroom. She petted Margaret in every possible way, and bought every delicacy or soft luxury in which she herself would have burrowed and sought comfort. But Margaret was indifferent to all these things, or, if they forced themselves upon her attention, it was simply as causes for gratitude to her aunt, who was putting herself so much out of her way to think of her. She was restless, though so weak. All day long she kept herself from thinking of the ceremony which was going on at Oxford, by wandering from room to room, and languidly setting aside such articles as she wished to retain. Dixon followed her by Mrs. Shaw's desire, ostensibly to receive instructions, but with a private injunction to soothe her into repose as soon as might be. These books, Dixon, I will keep. All the rest will you send to Mr. Bell. They are of a kind that he will value for themselves, as well as for Papa's sake. This. I should like you to take this to Mr. Thornton, after I am gone. Stay. I will write a note with it. And she sat down hastily, as if afraid of thinking, and wrote, Dear Sir, the accompanying book, I am sure, will be valued by you for the sake of my father, to whom it belonged. Yours sincerely, Margaret Hale. She set out again upon her travels through the house, turning over articles, known to her from childhood, with a sort of caressing reluctance to leave them, old-fashioned, worn, and shabby as they might be. But she hardly spoke again, and Dixon's report to Mrs. Shaw was that she doubted whether Miss Hale heard a word of what she said though she talked the whole time in order to divert her attention. The consequence of being on her feet all day was excessive bodily weariness in the evening, and a better night's rest than she had had since she had heard of Mr. Hale's death. At breakfast-time the next day she expressed her wish to go and bid one or two friends good-bye. Mrs. Shaw objected. "'I am sure, my dear, you can have no friends here with whom you are sufficiently intimate to justify you in calling upon them so soon before you have been at church. But to-day is my only day, if Captain Lennox comes this afternoon, and if we must—if I must really go to-morrow. Oh, yes, we shall go to-morrow. I am more and more convinced that this air is bad for you, and it makes you look so pale and ill. Besides, Edith expects us, and she may be waiting me, and you cannot be left alone, my dear, at your age. No, if you must pay these calls, I will go with you. Dixon can get us a coach, I suppose. So Mrs. Shaw went to take care of Margaret, and took her maid with her to take care of the shawls and air-cushions. Margaret's face was too sad to lighten up into a smile at all this preparation for paying two visits, that she had often made by herself at all hours of the day. She was half afraid of owning that one place to which she was going was Nicholas Higgins, all she could do was to hope her aunt would be indisposed to get out of the coach and walk up the court, and at every breath of wind have her face slapped by wet clothes, hanging out on dry ropes stretched from house to house. There was a little battle in Mrs. Shaw's mind between ease and a sense of matronly propriety, but the former gained the day, and with many an injunction to Margaret to be careful of herself and not to catch any fever, such as was always lurking in such places, her aunt permitted her to go where she had often been before without taking any precaution or requiring any permission. Nicholas was out, 
only Mary and one or two of the Boucher children at home. Margaret was vexed with herself for not having timed her visit better. Mary had a very blunt intellect, although her feelings were warm and kind, and the instant she understood what Margaret's purpose was in coming to see them, she began to cry and sob with so little restraint that Margaret found it useless to say any of the thousand little things which had suggested themselves to her as she was coming along in the coach. She could only try to comfort her a little by suggesting the vague chance of their meeting again, at some possible time, in some possible place, and bid her tell her father how much she wished, if he could manage it, that he should come to see her when he had done his work in the evening. As she was leaving the place, she stopped and looked round, then hesitated a little before she said, "'I should like to have some little thing to remind me of Bessie.' Instantly Mary's generosity was keenly alive. What could they give? And on Margaret singling out a little common drinking-cup, which she remembered as the one always standing by Bessie's side, with drink for her feverish lips, Mary said, "'Oh, take some at better. That only cost four pence.' "'That will do, thank you,' said Margaret, and she went quickly away, while the light caused by the pleasure of having something to give yet lingered on Mary's face. "'Now, to Mrs. Thornton's,' she thought to herself. "'It must be done.' But she looked rather rigid and pale at the thought of it, and had hard work to find the exact words in which to explain to her aunt who Mrs. Thornton was, and why she should go to bid her farewell. They— for Mrs. Shaw alighted here, were shown into the drawing-room, in which a fire had only just been kindled. Mrs. Shaw huddled herself up in her shawl, and shivered. "'What an icy room!' she said. They had to wait for some time before Mrs. Thornton entered. There was some softening in her heart towards Margaret, now that she was going away out of her sight. She remembered her spirit, as shown at various times and places, even more than the patience with which she had endured long and wearing cares. Her countenance was blander than usual, as she greeted her. There was even a shade of tenderness in her manner, as she noticed the white, tear-swollen face, and the quiver in the voice which Margaret tried to make so steady. "'Allow me to introduce my aunt, Mrs. Shaw. I am going away from Milton to-morrow. I do not know if you are aware of it. But I wanted to see you once again, Mrs. Thornton, to—' to apologize for my manner the last time I saw you, and to say that I am sure you meant kindly, however much we may have misunderstood each other. Mrs. Shaw looked extremely perplexed by what Margaret had said. Thanks for kindness, and apologies for failure in good manners. But Mrs. Thornton replied, Miss Hale, I am glad you do me justice. I did no more than I believed to be my duty in remonstrating with you as I did, I have always desired to act the part of a friend to you. I am glad you do me justice. And, said Margaret, blushing excessively as she spoke, will you do me justice, and believe that, though I cannot, I do not choose, to give explanations of my conduct, I have not acted in the unbecoming way you apprehended? Margaret's voice was so soft, and her eyes so pleading, that Mrs. Thornton was for once affected by the charm of manner to which she had hitherto proved herself invulnerable. "'Yes, I do believe you. Let us say no more about it. Where are you going to reside, Miss Hale? I understood from Mr. Bell that you were going to leave Milton.' 
You never liked Milton, you know, said Mrs. Thornton, with a sort of grim smile. But for all that, you must not expect me to congratulate you on quitting it. Where shall you live? With my aunt, replied Margaret, turning towards Mrs. Shaw. My niece will reside with me in Harley Street. She is almost like a daughter to me, said Mrs. Shaw, looking fondly at Margaret, and I am glad to acknowledge my own obligation for any kindness that has been shown to her. If you and your husband ever come to town, my son and daughter, Captain and Mrs. Lennox, will, I am sure, join with me in wishing to do anything in our power to show you attention. Mrs. Thornton thought in her own mind that Margaret had not taken much care to enlighten her aunt as to the relationship between the Mr. and Mrs. Thornton, towards whom the fine lady was extending her soft patronage. So she answered shortly, "'My husband is dead. Mr. Thornton is my son. I never go to London, so I am not likely to be able to avail myself of your polite offers.' At this instant Mr. Thornton entered the room. He had only just returned from Oxford. His morning suit spoke of the reason that had called him there. "'John,' said his mother, "'this lady is Mrs. Shaw, Miss Hale's aunt. I am sorry to say that Miss Hale's call is to wish us good-bye.' "'You are going, then,' said he, in a low voice. "'Yes,' said Margaret. "'We leave to-morrow.' "'My son-in-law comes this evening to escort us,' said Mrs. Shaw. Mr. Thornton turned away. He had not sat down, and now he seemed to be examining something on the table, almost as if he had discovered an unopened letter, which had made him forget the present company. He did not even seem to be aware when they got up to take leave. He started forwards, however, to hand Mrs. Shaw down to the carriage. As it drove up, he and Margaret stood close together on the doorstep, and it was impossible but that the recollection of the day of the riot should force itself into both their minds. Into his it came associated with the speeches of the following day, her passionate declaration that there was not a man in all that violent and desperate crowd for whom she did not care as much as for him, and at the remembrance of her taunting words his brow grew stern, though his heart beat thick with longing love. No, said he, I put it to the touch once and I lost it all. Let her go, with her stony heart and her beauty. How set and terrible her look is now, for all her loveliness of feature. She is afraid I shall speak what will require some stern repression. Let her go. Beauty and heiress as she may be, she will find it hard to meet with a truer heart than mine. Let her go." and there was no tone of regret or emotion of any kind in the voice with which he said good-bye, and the offered hand was taken with a resolute calmness, and dropped as carelessly as if it had been a dead and withered flower. But none in his household saw Mr. Thornton again that day. He was busily engaged, or so he said. Margaret's strength was so utterly exhausted by these visits that she had to submit to much watching and petting and sighing I-told-you-sos from her aunt. Dixon said she was quite as bad as she had been on the first day she heard of her father's death, and she and Mrs. Shaw consulted as to the desirableness of delaying the morrow's journey. But when her aunt reluctantly proposed a few days' delay to Margaret, the latter writhed her body as if in acute suffering, and said, "'Oh, let us go. I cannot be patient here. I shall not get well here. I want to forget.' 
so the arrangements went on and captain lennox came and with him news of edith and the little boy and margaret found that the indifferent careless conversation of one who however kind was not too warm and anxious a sympathizer did her good she roused up and by the time that she knew she might expect higgins she was able to leave the room quietly and await in her own chamber the expected summons eh said he as she came in to think of the old gentleman dropping off as he did you might have knocked me down with a straw when they tailed me mr hale said i him as was the parson ay said they then said i there's as good a man gone as ever lived on this earth let who will be t'other and i came to see ye and tell ye how grieved i were but them women in the kitchen wouldn't tell ye i were there they said you were ill and butter me but ye don't look like the same wench and you're going to be a grand lady up in lunnon aren't ye not a grand lady said margaret half smiling well thornton said says he a day or two ago higgins have you seen miss hale no says i there's a pack o women who won't let me at her but i can bide my time if she's ill she and i knows each other pretty well and who'll not go doubtin that i'm main sorry for the old gentleman's death just because i can't get at her and tell her so and says he you'll not have much time for to try and see her my fine chap she's not for saying with us a day longer nor she can help she's got grand relations and they're carrying her off and we shan't see her no more maister said i if i dunnot see her afore who goes i'll strive to get up to lunnon next whitsunstide that i will i'll not be balked of saying her good-bye by any relations whatsomdever but bless you i knowed you'd come it were only for to humour the maister i let on as if i thought you mappin leave milton without seeing me you're quite right said margaret you only do me justice and you'll not forget me i'm sure if no one else in milton remembers me i'm certain you will and papa too you know how good and tender he was look higgins here is his bible i have kept it for you i can ill spare it but i know he would have liked you to have it i'm sure you'll care for it and study what's in it for his sake you may say that if it were the deuce's own scribble and ye asked me to read in it for your sake and the old gentleman's i'd do it what's this wench i'm not goin for to take your brass so dunnot think it we've been great friends about the sound of money passin between us for the children for boucher's children said margaret hurriedly they may need it you've no right to refuse it for them i would not give you a penny she said smiling don't think there's any of it for you well wench i can nobody say bless you and bless you and amen end of chapter forty three Chapter forty four of North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter forty four. Ease, not peace. A dull rotation, never at a stay. Yesterday's face, twin image of today. Cowper. 
of what each one should be he sees the form and rule and till he reach to that his joy can ne'er be full Ruckert. it was very well for margaret that the extreme quiet of the harley street house during edith's recovery from her confinement gave her the natural rest which she needed it gave her time to comprehend the sudden change which had taken place in her circumstances within the last two months she found herself at once an inmate of a luxurious house where the bare knowledge of the existence of every trouble or care seemed scarcely to have penetrated the wheels of the machinery of daily life were well oiled and went along with delicious smoothness mrs shaw and edith could hardly make enough of margaret on her return to what they persisted in calling her home and she felt that it was almost ungrateful in her to have a secret feeling that the hellstone vicarage nay even the poor little house at milton with her anxious father and her invalid mother and all the small household cares of comparative poverty composed her idea of home edith was impatient to get well in order to fill margaret's bedroom with all the soft comforts and pretty knick-knacks with which her own abounded mrs shaw and her maid found plenty of occupation in restoring margaret's wardrobe to a state of elegant variety captain lennox was easy kind and gentlemanly sat with his wife in her dressing-room an hour or two every day played with his little boy for another hour and lounged away the rest of his time at his club when he was not engaged out to dinner just before margaret had recovered from her necessity for quiet and repose before she had begun to feel her life wanting and dull edith came downstairs and resumed her usual part in the household and margaret fell into the old habit of watching and admiring and ministering to her cousin she gladly took all charge of the semblances of duties off edith's hands answered notes reminded her of engagements tended her when no gaiety was in prospect and she was consequently rather inclined to fancy herself ill but all the rest of the family were in the full business of the london season and margaret was often left alone then her thoughts went back to milton with a strange sense of the contrast between the life there and here she was getting surfeited of the eventless ease in which no struggle or endeavour was required she was afraid lest she should even become sleepily deadened into forgetfulness of anything beyond the life which was lapping her round with luxury there might be toilers and moilers there in london but she never saw them the very servants lived in an underground world of their own of which she knew neither the hopes nor the fears they only seemed to start into existence when some want or whim of their master and mistress needed them there was a strange unsatisfied vacuum in margaret's heart and mode of life and once when she had dimly hinted this to edith the latter wearied with dancing the night before languidly stroked margaret's cheek as she sat by her in the old attitude she on a footstool by the sofa where edith lay poor child said edith it is a little sad for you to be left night after night just at this time when all the world is so gay but we shall be having our dinner-parties soon as soon as henry comes back from circuit and then there will be a little pleasant variety for you no wonder it is moped poor darling margaret did not feel as if the dinner-parties would be a panacea but edith piqued herself on her dinner-parties so different as she said from the old dowager dinners under mamma's regime and mrs shaw herself seemed to take exactly the same kind of pleasure in the very different arrangements and circle of acquaintances 
which were to Captain and Mrs. Lennox's taste, as she did from the more formal and ponderous entertainments which she herself used to give. Captain Lennox was always extremely kind and brotherly to Margaret. She was really fond of him, excepting when he was anxiously attentive to Edith's dress and appearance, with a view to her beauty making a sufficient impression upon the world. Then all the latent Vashti in Margaret was roused, and she could hardly keep herself from expressing her feelings. The course of Margaret's day was this, a quiet hour or two before a late breakfast, an unpunctual meal, lazily eaten by weary and half-awake people, but yet at which, in all its dragged-out length, she was expected to be present, because, directly afterwards, came a discussion of plans, at which, although none of them concerned her, she was expected to give her sympathy, if she could not assist with her advice, an endless number of notes to write, which Edith invariably left to her, with many caressing compliments as to her eloquence du billet. A little play with Sholto, as he returned from his morning's walk, besides the care of the children during the servants' dinner, a drive or callers, and some dinner or morning engagements for her aunt and cousins, which left Margaret free, it is true, but rather wearied with the inactivity of the day, coming upon depressed spirits and delicate health. She looked forward with longing, though unspoken interest, to the homely object of Dixon's return from Milton, where, until now, the old servant had been busily engaged in winding up all the affairs of the Hale family. It had appeared a sudden famine to her heart, this entire cessation of any news respecting the people amongst whom she had lived so long. It was true that Dixon, in her business letters, quoted, every now and then, an opinion of Mr. Thornton's as to what she had better do about the furniture, or how to act in regard to the landlord of the Crampton Terrace house. But it was only here and there that the name came in, or any Milton name, indeed, and Margaret was sitting one evening, all alone in the Lennox's drawing-room, not reading Dixon's letters, which she yet held in her hand, but thinking over them, and recalling the days which had been, and picturing the busy life out of which her own had been taken and never missed wondering if all went on in that whirl just as if she and her father had never been, questioning within herself if no one in all the crowd missed her, not Higgins, she was not thinking of him, when, suddenly, Mr. Bell was announced, and Margaret hurried the letters into her work-basket and started up, blushing as if she had been doing some guilty thing. "'Oh, Mr. Bell, I never thought of seeing you.' "'But you give me a welcome, I hope, as well as that very pretty start of surprise.' "'Have you dined? How did you come? Let me order you some dinner.' "'If you are going to have any. Otherwise, you know, there is no one who cares less for eating than I do. But where are the others? Gone out to dinner? Left you alone?' "'Oh, yes, and it is such a rest. I was just thinking. But will you run the risk of dinner?' I don't know if there's anything in the house. Why, to tell you the truth, I dined at my club. Only they don't cook as well as they did. So I thought, if you were going to dine, I might try and make out my dinner. But never mind, never mind. There aren't ten cooks in England to be trusted at impromptu dinners. If their skill and their fires will stand it, their tempers won't. You shall make me some tea, Margaret. And now, what were you thinking of? You were going to tell me. 
whose letters were those goddaughter that you hid away so speedily only dixon's replied margaret growing very red Whew! is that all who do you think came up in the train with me i don't know said margaret resolved against making a guess your what do you call him what's the right name for a cousin-in-law's brother mr henry lennox asked margaret yes replied mr bell you knew him formerly didn't you what sort of a person is he margaret i liked him long ago said margaret glancing down for a moment and then she looked straight up and went on in her natural manner you know we have been corresponding about frederick since but i have not seen him for nearly three years and he may be changed what did you think of him i don't know he was so busy trying to find out who i was in the first instance and what i was in the second that he never let out who he was unless indeed that veiled curiosity of his as to what manner of man he had to talk to was not a good piece and a fair indication of his character do you call him good-looking margaret no certainly not do you not i but i thought perhaps you might is he a great deal here i fancy he is when he is in town he has been on circuit now since i came but mr bell have you come from oxford or from milton from milton don't you see i'm smoke-dried certainly but i thought that it might be the effect of the antiquities of oxford come now be a sensible woman in oxford i could have managed all the landlords in the place and had my own way with half the trouble your milton landlord has given me and defeated me after all he won't take the house off our hands till next june twelvemonth luckily mr thornton found a tenant for it why don't you ask after mr thornton margaret he has proved himself a very active friend of yours i can tell you taken more than half the trouble off my hands and how is he how is mrs thornton asked margaret hurriedly and below her breath though she tried to speak out i suppose they're well i've been staying at their house till i was driven out of it by the perpetual clack about the thornton girl's marriage it was too much for thornton himself though she was his sister he used to go and sit in his own room perpetually he's getting past the age of caring for such things either as principal or accessory i was surprised to find the old lady falling into the current and carried away by her daughter's enthusiasm for orange blossoms and lace i thought mrs thornton had been made of sterner stuff she would put on any assumption of feeling to veil her daughter's weakness said margaret in a low voice perhaps so you've studied her have you she doesn't seem over fond of you margaret i know it said margaret oh here's tea at last exclaimed she as if relieved and with tea came mr henry lennox who had walked up to harley street after a late dinner and had evidently expected to find his brother and sister-in-law at home margaret suspected him of being as thankful as she was at the presence of a third party on this their first meeting since the memorable day of his offer and her refusal at helstone she could hardly tell what to say at first and was thankful for all the tea-table occupations which gave her an excuse for keeping silence and him an opportunity of recovering himself for to tell the truth he had rather forced himself up to harley street this evening with a view of getting over an awkward meeting 
awkward even in the presence of Captain Lennox and Edith, and doubly awkward now that he found her the only lady there, and the person to whom he must naturally and perforce address a great part of his conversation. She was the first to recover her self-possession. She began to talk on the subject which came uppermost in her mind, after the first flush of awkward shyness. "'Mr. Lennox, I have been so much obliged to you for all you have done about Frederick.' "'I'm only sorry it has been so unsuccessful,' he replied, with a quick glance towards Mr. Bell, as if reconnoitering how much he might say before him. Margaret, as if she read his thought, addressed herself to Mr. Bell, both including him in the conversation and implying that he was perfectly aware of the endeavours that had been made to clear Frederick. That Horrocks, the very last witness of all, has proved as unavailing as all the others. Mr. Lennox has discovered that he sailed for Australia only last August, only two months before Frederick was in England, and gave us the names of— "'Frederick in England? You never told me that!' exclaimed Mr. Bell in surprise. "'I thought you knew. I never doubted you had been told. Of course, it was a great secret, and perhaps I should not have named it now.' said Margaret, a little dismayed. "'I have never named it to either my brother or your cousin,' said Mr. Lennox, with a little professional dryness of implied reproach. "'Never mind, Margaret. I'm not living in a talking, babbling world, nor yet among people who are trying to worm facts out of me. You needn't look so frightened because you have let the cat out of the bag to a faithful old hermit like me. I shall never name his having been in England. I shall be out of temptation.' for no one will ask me. Stay, interrupting himself rather abruptly. Was it at your mother's funeral? He was with Mamma when she died, said Margaret softly. To be sure, to be sure. Why, someone asked me if he had not been over then, and I denied it stoutly, not many weeks ago. Who could it have been? Oh, I recollect. But he did not say the name and although Margaret would have given much to know if her suspicions were right, and it had been Mr. Thornton who had made the inquiry, she could not ask the question of Mr. Bell, much as she longed to do so. There was a pause for a moment or two. Then Mr. Lennox said, addressing himself to Margaret, "'I suppose, as Mr. Bell is now acquainted with all the circumstances attending your brother's unfortunate dilemma, I cannot do better than inform him exactly how the research into the evidence we once hoped to produce in his favour stands at present. So, if he will do me the honour to breakfast with me to-morrow, we will go over the names of these missing gentry. I should like to hear all the particulars, if I may. Cannot you come here? I dare not ask you both to breakfast, though I am sure you would be welcome. But let me know all I can about Frederick, even though there may be no hope at present." "'I have an engagement at half-past eleven, but I will certainly come if you wish it,' replied Mr. Lennox, with a little afterthought of extreme willingness, which made Margaret shrink into herself, and almost wish that she had not proposed her natural request. Mr. Bell got up, and looked around him for his hat, which had been removed to make room for tea. "'Well,' said he, "'I don't know what Mr. Lennox is inclined to do, but I am disposed to be moving off homewards. I've been a journey to-day.' and journeys begin to tell upon my sixty and odd years. "'I believe I shall stay to see my brother and sister,' said Mr. Lennox, making no movement of departure. Margaret was seized with a shy, awkward dread of being left alone with him. 
the scene on the little terrace in the Hellstone garden was so present to her that she could hardly help believing it was so with him. "'Don't go yet, please, Mr. Bell,' she said hastily. "'I want you to see Edith, and I want Edith to know you. "'Please,' said she, laying a light but determined hand on his arm. He looked at her, and saw the confusion stirring in her countenance. He sat down again, as if her little touch had been possessed of resistless strength. "'You see how she overpowers me, Mr. Lennox,' said he. "'And I hope you notice the happy choice of her expressions. She wants me to see this cousin Edith, who, I am told, is a great beauty. But she has the honesty to change her word when she comes to me. Mrs. Lennox is to know me. I suppose I am not much to see, eh, Margaret?' He joked, to give her time to recover from the slight flutter which he had detected in her manner on his proposal to leave, and she caught the tone and threw the ball back. Mr. Lennox wondered how his brother, the captain, could have reported her as having lost all her good looks. To be sure, in her quiet black dress she was a contrast to Edith, dancing in her white crepe mourning, and long floating golden hair, all softness and glitter. She dimpled and blushed most becomingly when introduced to Mr. Bell, conscious that she had her reputation as a beauty to keep up, and that it would not do to have a Mordecai refusing to worship and admire, even in the shape of an old fellow of a college, which nobody had ever heard of. Mrs. Shaw and Captain Lennox, each in their separate way, gave Mr. Bell a kind and sincere welcome, winning him over to them, almost in spite of himself especially when he saw how naturally Margaret took her place as sister and daughter of the house. "'What a shame that we were not at home to receive you,' said Edith. "'You too, Henry, though I don't know that we should have stayed home for you, and for Mr. Bell, for Margaret's Mr. Bell.' "'There is no knowing what sacrifices you would not have made,' said her brother-in-law. "'Even a dinner-party, and the delight of wearing this very becoming dress.' Edith did not know whether to frown or to smile, but it did not suit Mr. Lennox to drive her to the first of these alternatives, so he went on. "'Will you show your readiness to make sacrifices to-morrow morning, first by asking me to breakfast, to meet Mr. Bell, and secondly by being so kind as to order it at half-past nine, instead of ten o'clock? I have some letters and papers that I want to show to Miss Hale and Mr. Bell.' "'I hope Mr. Bell will make our house his own during his stay in London,' said Captain Lennox. I am only so sorry that we cannot offer him a bedroom. Thank you. I am very much obliged to you. You would only think me a curl if you had, for I should decline it, I believe, in spite of all the temptations of such agreeable company, said Mr. Bell, bowing all round and secretly congratulating himself on the very neat turn he had given to his sentence, which, if put into plain language, would have been more to this effect. I couldn't stand the restraints of such a proper-behaved and civil-spoken set of people as these are. It would be like meat without salt. I am thankful they haven't a bed. And how well I rounded my sentence! I am absolutely catching the trick of good manners." His self-satisfaction lasted him till he was fairly out in the streets, walking side by side with Henry Lennox. Here he suddenly remembered Margaret's little look of entreaty as she urged him to stay longer and he also recollected a few hints given him long ago by an acquaintance of Mr. Lennox's as to his admiration of Margaret. It gave a new direction to his thoughts. "'You have known Miss Hale for a long time, I believe. How do you think her looking? She strikes me as pale and ill.' "'I thought her looking remarkably well. 
Perhaps not when I first came in, now I think of it. But certainly, when she grew animated, she looked as well as ever I saw her do. She has had a great deal to go through, said Mr. Bell. Yes, I have been very sorry to hear of all she has had to bear, not merely the common and universal sorrow arising from death, but all the annoyance which her father's conduct must have caused her, and then— Her father's conduct, said Mr. Bell, in an accent of surprise. You must have heard some wrong statement. He behaved in the most conscientious manner. He showed more resolute strength than I should ever have given him credit for formerly. Perhaps I have been wrongly informed, but I have been told, by his successor in the living, a clever, sensible man, and a thoroughly active clergyman, that there was no call upon Mr. Hale to do what he did, relinquish the living, and throw himself and his family on the tender mercies of private teaching in a manufacturing town. The bishop had offered him another living, it is true, but if he had come to entertain certain doubts, he could have remained where he was, and so had no occasion to resign. But the truth is, these country clergymen live such isolated lives. Isolated, I mean, from all intercourse with men of equal cultivation with themselves, by whose minds they might regulate their own, and discover when they were going either too fast or too slow, that they are very apt to disturb themselves with imaginary doubts as to the articles of faith, and throw up certain opportunities of doing good for very uncertain fancies of their own. I differ from you. I do not think they are very apt to do as my poor friend Hale did. Mr. Bell was inwardly chafing. Perhaps I used too general an expression in saying, very apt, but certainly their lives are such as very often to produce either inordinate self-sufficiency or a morbid state of conscience, replied Mr. Lennox, with perfect coolness. "'You don't meet with any self-sufficiency among the lawyers, for instance?' asked Mr. Bell. "'And seldom, I imagine, any cases of morbid conscience.' He was becoming more and more vexed, and forgetting his lately-caught trick of good manners. Mr. Lennox saw now that he had annoyed his companion, and as he had talked pretty much for the sake of saying something, and so passing the time while their road lay together, he was very indifferent as to the exact side he took upon the question, and quietly came round by saying, "'To be sure, there is something fine in a man of Mr. Hale's age, leaving his home of twenty years, and giving up all settled habits, for an idea which was probably erroneous. But that does not matter. An untangible thought. One cannot help admiring him, with a mixture of pity in one's admiration, something like what one feels for Don Quixote. Such a gentleman as he was, too. I shall never forget the refined and simple hospitality he showed me that last day at Hellstone. Only half mollified, and yet anxious, in order to lull certain qualms of his own conscience, to believe that Mr. Hale's conduct had a tinge of Quixoteism in it, Mr. Bell growled out, "'Ay, and you don't know Milton. Such a change from Hellstone. It is years since I have been at Hellstone, but I'll answer for it. It is standing there yet every stick and stone, as it has done for the last century, while Milton. I go there every four or five years, and I was born there, yet I do assure you I often lose my way. I, among the very piles of warehouses that are built upon my father's orchards. Do we part here? Well, good night, sir. I suppose we shall meet in Harley Street to-morrow morning. End of chapter 44
Chapter forty five of North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter forty five. Not all a dream. Where are the sounds that swam along the buoyant air when I was young? The last vibration now is o'er, and they who listen are no more. Ah, let me close my eyes and dream. W. S. Landor The idea of Hellstone had been suggested to Mr. Bell's waking mind by his conversation with Mr. Lennox, and all night long it ran riot through his dreams. He was again the tutor in the college where he now held the rank of fellow. It was again a long vacation, and he was staying with his newly married friend, the proud husband and happy victor of Hellstone. Over babbling brooks they took impossible leaps, which seemed to keep them whole days suspended in the air. Time and space were not, though all other things seemed real. Every event was measured by the emotions of the mind, not by its actual existence, for existence it had none. But the trees were gorgeous in their autumnal leafiness, the warm odors of flower and herb came sweet upon the senses, the young wife moved about her house with just that mixture of annoyance at her position as regarded wealth, with pride in her handsome and devoted husband, which Mr. Bell had noticed in real life a quarter of a century ago. The dream was so like life that, when he awoke, his present life seemed like a dream. Where was he? In the close, handsomely furnished room of a London hotel. Where were those who spoke to him, moved around him, touched him, not an instant ago? Dead buried, lost for evermore, as far as earth for evermore would extend. He was an old man, so lately exultant in the full strength of manhood. The utter loneliness of his life was insupportable to think about. He got up hastily, and tried to forget what nevermore might be, in a hurried dressing for the breakfast in Harley Street. He could not attend to all the lawyer's details, which, as he saw, made Margaret's eyes dilate, and her lips grow pale, as one by one fate decreed, or so it seemed, every morsel of evidence which would exonerate Frederick should fall from beneath her feet and disappear. Even Mr. Lennox's well-regulated professional voice took a softer, tenderer tone as he drew near to the extinction of the last hope. It was not that Margaret had not been perfectly aware of the result before. It was only that the details of each successive disappointment came with such relentless minuteness to quench all hope, that she at last fairly gave way to tears. Mr. Lennox stopped reading. "'I had better not go on,' said he, in a concerned voice. "'It was a foolish proposal of mine. Lieutenant Hale—and even this giving him the title of service from which he had so harshly been expelled was soothing to Margaret— Lieutenant Hale is happy now, more secure in fortune and future prospects than he could ever have been in the Navy, and has, doubtless, adopted his wife's country as his own. "'That is it,' said Margaret. "'It seems so selfish in me to regret it,' trying to smile. "'And yet he is lost to me, and I am so lonely.' Mr. Lennox turned over his papers and wished that he were as rich and prosperous as he believed he should be some day. 
Mr. Bell blew his nose, but, otherwise, he also kept silence. And Margaret, in a minute or two, had apparently recovered her usual composure. She thanked Mr. Lennox very courteously for all his trouble, all the more courteously and graciously, because she was conscious that, by her behaviour, he might have probably been led to imagine that he had given her needless pain. Yet it was pain she would not have been without. Mr. Bell came up to wish her good-bye. "'Margaret,' said he, as he fumbled with his gloves, "'I'm going down to Hellstone to-morrow, to look at the old place. Would you like to come with me, or would it give you too much pain? Speak out. Don't be afraid.' "'Oh, Mr. Bell,' said she, and could say no more. But she took his old gouty hand and kissed it. "'Come, come, that's enough.' said he, reddening with awkwardness. "'I suppose your Aunt Shaw will trust you with me. We'll go to-morrow morning, and we shall get there about two o'clock, I fancy. We'll take a snack, and order dinner at the little inn, the Leonard Arms, it used to be, and go and get an appetite in the forest. Can you stand it, Margaret? It will be a trial, I know, to both of us. But it will be a pleasure to me, at least. And there we'll dine.' It will be but doe venison, if we can get it at all, and then I'll take my nap while you go out and see old friends. I'll give you back safe and sound, barring railway accidents, and I'll insure your life for a thousand pounds before starting, which may be some comfort to your relations. But otherwise, I'll bring you back to Mrs. Shaw by lunchtime on Friday, so if you say yes, I'll just go upstairs and propose it. It's no use my trying to say how much I shall like it said Margaret, through her tears. "'Well, then, prove your gratitude by keeping those fountains of yours dry for the next two days. If you don't, I shall feel queer myself about the lacrimal ducks, and I don't like that.' "'I won't cry a drop,' said Margaret, winking her eyes to shake the tears off her eyelashes, and forcing a smile. "'There's my good girl. Then we'll go upstairs and settle it all.' Margaret was in a state of almost trembling eagerness, while Mr. Bell discussed his plan with her Aunt Shaw, who was first startled, then doubtful and perplexed, and in the end, yielding rather to the rough force of Mr. Bell's words than to her own conviction. For to the last, whether it was right or wrong, proper or improper, she could not settle to her own satisfaction, till Margaret's safe return, the happy fulfillment of the project, gave her decision enough to say— she was sure it had been a very kind thought of Mr. Bell's, and just what she herself had been wishing for Margaret, as giving her the very change which she required, after all the anxious time she had had. End of chapter 45everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.